Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. It's March 2002, and the first signs of spring are starting to show. It's pretty chilly still, but there's blossom on the trees. Daria, the former Jehovah's Witness who was abused as a child, is 16. Her parents are out shopping in home base for DIY supplies when they see some familiar faces from the Kingdom Hall. They had bumped into, I think it was the aunt and uncle, of another child who was a similar age to me. They chit-chat a while about the weather, how the children are doing at school, the usual sort of thing. But then the conversation turns to more serious matters. It had been shared with them that this other child had been abused and that the elders knew back in the 90s. Daria's parents are taken aback. Her mother, Siobhan, knows Daria's been abused. She has Peter Stewart's letter of apology. But this couple was now telling her that the same man, Peter Stewart, abused another child, their niece. It was a new name, not Daria, and not the child he was sent to prison over. So they would have known right at the beginning of um, my abuse. The elders knew Peter Stewart posed a risk because someone else had already accused him of abuse and they could have used that information to protect Daria. They knew all along. When the news filters down to Daria, she decides to confront one of the elders about it. She goes to Alan Orton, the man in the ill-fitting suit who you heard about in the last episode. He's the one who ripped up Peter Stewart's apology letter. And she asks him if it's true that another girl had accused Peter Stewart of abuse. And he just point blank, he said it wasn't true. So he was just like, no, that wouldn't have happened. If that had happened, then steps would have been taken to deal with him. Daria didn't know what to believe anymore. But she couldn't shake the feeling that the Jehovah's Witnesses had somehow failed her. I can't shake that feeling either. Were the elders hiding something? And how does it fit into the bigger picture? I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, from The Telegraph's investigations team. Episode 2, Missing Pieces. I'm on my way to the Midlands to meet a former Jehovah's Witness who I first read about in court documents. She's known as Victim AM. Her case is a clear-cut example of the problem we're investigating. Hi, it's Catherine. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you. I'm going to call her Michelle. That's not her real name. 
She wants to stay anonymous. So you're hearing an actor speak her words. If you ask most people about Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll generally say, oh, they're a really nice bunch, bit odd, slightly odd views. Michelle's in her late 30s, with dyed red hair. She's warm and friendly, but you can also tell she just wants to get this over with. Most people know about the blood issue, but nobody really knows kind of anything much other than that. The Jehovah's Witness religion arrived in her family before she was born, when a member of the organisation happened to knock at her grandmother's door and said, Basically, I can offer you to live in a paradise forever with no problems, you'll have a wonderful life. And she always said the same thing to us. She said, I wasn't really bothered for me, but I thought, well, I've got kids, so I should give it a go. But while she's relaxed talking about her family history and the quirks of the faith, she's painfully uncomfortable discussing one thing, the thing I've come to talk to her about today. Michelle's a survivor of child sexual abuse and really struggles to discuss what she went through. But she's agreed to speak to me because she wants to protect other children from becoming victims. And do you remember what happened? I remember bits of things. I remember I did some cognitive behavioural therapy, which is the worst thing I've ever done in my life, and I shall never do it again. It was bloody awful. It's not, what do you remember? It's, what did you feel? What can you smell? What can you taste? And I remember, you know, about weights on top of me. I remember pains in certain areas. That was the worst thing I ever did. It made me physically sick doing that. The man who abused Michelle was a fellow member of her congregation. He was an older man with breathing difficulties who lived on his own. He had really bad asthma and he had this weird machine that he used to hook up to. He was a well-respected ministerial servant. That's one step below an elder, a bit like a deacon in a church. As part of his duties, he sent people to go and knock on doors just as someone had knocked on her grandmother's door all those years before. People would go in pairs and he would lead the group and be like, oh, well, there's only me and Michelle left, so, you know, I'll take her with me and we'll do it together. The abuse went on for years. And then it just gradually progressed to worse and worse. And yeah, I would say, you know, pretty much as bad as it gets. One day, Michelle couldn't take it any longer and she told her family... And how old were you when you told them? Not a clue. Not a bloody... I don't know an actual clue. It's just... My timeline is shocking. I've worked out that she was in primary school at the time. Some of Michelle's memories of what happened are hazy. That's partly because she's blocked out the trauma. But it's also because, after word got out about the abuse, members of her congregation kept telling her that she'd got it wrong. All of it was just, you know, you've made that up and, you know, you can't make accusations like this and tarnish his good name. And I got told off for not sitting on his knee. According to Michelle's testimony to the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, that's better known as ICSA, the elders of her congregation told her she'd misconstrued things. She says they even encouraged her to continue spending time with her abuser. There was a lot of me being told I'd misunderstood what had happened, and that that wasn't right, and that that wouldn't have happened. And I was very young, and so at that point I thought, well, maybe I have then. Maybe I have. 
Because Michelle can't remember everything, I've been talking to her lawyers and going through court records to fill in the gaps. I wanted to find out who the elders were so that we could also ask them what happened. In one of their witness statements, it says they met to discuss the allegations. But we can't talk to the elders that were believed to be there because all three of them are now dead. The upshot of the Jehovah's Witnesses' response to Michelle was that she spent most of her life convinced she'd been mistaken. Nobody asked me any questions that ever gave me the impression that anyone thought what I was saying was accurate. The Jehovah's Witnesses told Ixa that Michelle's abuse took place more than 30 years ago and isn't a reflection of its current child safeguarding policies. But that's small comfort to Michelle. What she didn't know then is that shortly after her relative reported the abuse, things did start to move in the background. I spent a lot of time trying to understand what was going on behind the scenes in Michelle's case to get to the bottom of what elders in the Jehovah's Witnesses do when someone in their community is accused of sexually abusing a child. This is one guy here, um, and he's a former, says he's a former elder, but he's talking here about other things, like his other experiences. The system's a closely guarded secret. But together with my colleagues in the investigations team, I've been speaking to former Jehovah's Witnesses to try and piece together how it works. We really want to speak to people who were in senior positions, like John Viney. He says that when a child alleges they've been abused, the first instruction to elders is to ring the Bethel. Bethel means house of God. It's the name that's given to the headquarters. Ring Bethel was the only thing you did. And then at Bethel, someone up there decides whether it needs to go further or not. The next step in the internal process is for two elders to investigate whether the allegation should be upheld. The word investigates being used very loosely here because they won't pursue a case without a confession unless it meets something called the two-witness rule. That means there have to be two eyewitnesses to the sin. It's a huge problem with child abuse cases because most paedophiles operate in secret. So many cases don't get to the next stage. But Michelle's case did. Her abuser was summoned to something called a judicial committee to answer questions from a panel of three elders. What did you learn in that position? What was it like to sit on a judicial committee? It is very difficult because you're really, although you're not being a judge, you are being a judge. Nick French is a pretty unique source. He's a former Jehovah's Witness who was an elder, but sadly... He was also sexually abused as a child by his stepfather, another Jehovah's Witness called Gary Moscrop. Gary Moscrop faced one of these judicial committees. Only when I became an elder many years later would I have been aware of what the process was that took place. He would have sat down with three elders. They would have heard his confession. They would have read a couple of scriptures to him and then told him that... Um, they believe that he should be disfellowshipped. Disfellowshipped means being kicked out of the organisation. I'll confess, it took me a while to understand this, but whilst the elders on the judicial committee ask questions to gather facts, and it may look a bit like a court trial, it's not really. The elders' main job is to work out whether the perpetrator is sorry. 
the way that it's put across is that you're going to have to come to a decision that that God's already made. So God has already judged whether this person is innocent or guilty. And you have to understand what God's decision is. So it's quite a big weighty responsibility. If the elders decide a guilty person isn't sorry enough, taking into account the seriousness of their sin, they're disfellowshipped, kicked out of the congregation. Then the elders fill in a form called an S-77. You would have the form written out and uh, send the form off to the head office. A blue envelope to get posted on. They used to put it in a special blue envelope and send it off to Bethel. It's all digital these days. And that's it. Process finished. Nick's abuser, Gary Moscrop, was kicked out of the congregation. But it was different for Michelle. Her abuser was found guilty of assaulting her. But he was given the lightest of punishments. He wasn't disfellowshipped. He wasn't reported to the police. The elders believed that he wouldn't hurt any more children. So he was demoted. But you wouldn't have known it. Because outwardly, he appeared to return to his normal duties within weeks. For me, nothing changed. So I didn't suddenly not see him at the meetings. There wasn't an announcement to say, you know, he's done this wrong. Michelle didn't even realise that the elders had found him guilty. She wouldn't learn the truth for decades. In 2015, Michelle's about to go on holiday. She's checking the weather on the BBC when an article on the homepage catches her eye. There was something about Jehovah's Witnesses. Michelle's been out of the faith for years by this point, but she's still interested in it. It's not surprising given how much it dominated her early years. And I always like to have a click, see what's going on, see if there's any bad news or any kind of trauma. The article's about a case at the High Court... A woman, referred to as Victim A, has won a payout from the Jehovah's Witnesses for failing to protect her from a paedophile. Michelle scans down the screen. And as I read the first few bits of this this news article, it named him. It's a name Michelle knows well. He was a well-respected member of her congregation. A former public schoolboy with breathing difficulties. It was the man who had abused her as a child. Peter Stewart. The article was about Daria, the other victim we've heard from. Michelle continues reading. And then there was a section about a girl it happened to already, and that they'd known. Another girl. One he'd abused before Daria. And I read it a few times, and I just thought, I think that's me. Memories that were buried deep begin to surface. And she starts to realise that the things she believed as a child were actually true. And what's more, that other people had known about it. My first thought was, well, this is my fault then, because this has happened to someone else now, and I should have done something. She wanted to get a message to Daria, or Victor May, as she's known in the case, She found the details of her lawyer in the article, Kathleen Hallisey, and she emailed her. She just wanted me to 
say sorry to A because she thought she was responsible for the abuse. Kathleen called her back and they spoke at some length. Michelle was unnerved by how much this stranger knew about her. It's like when you go to a psychic and you're like, there's something going on here because how do they know that? And yeah, she knew all about me. And I'll never forget, she said, you're the missing piece of my puzzle. It also provided a missing piece for Michelle. After all, Michelle had always been told that she'd misunderstood what had happened and that Peter Stewart was a good man. But the biggest shock was when Kathleen told Michelle that Peter Stewart had confessed to abusing her. I've seen witness statements from the court case, and there it is in black and white, that Peter Stewart had tearfully confessed. And she said, and after he admitted it, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I had no idea. Nobody told me. That that was the first I knew of it. It's in this call with Kathleen that Michelle first learns that she's been lied to her whole life. It was very difficult because no matter how I looked at it, I either carried on ignoring it, but then there was the relief that, well, okay, so that's good because that means I'm not completely crazy. I didn't just make up this, you know, really sick, disgusting thing. All right, okay, but that did happen. So then I suppose I've got to then deal with that. It's a testament to the trail of destruction that child abuse leaves. Miles away, Daria was also processing complex emotions. On the one hand, she'd won in court. It's such a validation of everything that I've said and regardless of the fact that if they didn't believe me at least the rest of the world did and um, the judge did most importantly it's hard to overstate what a watershed moment that was it was the first case of its kind in britain and paved the way for other abuse victims to take action against the jehovah's witness organization it's also how i first came across daria's story she won £275,000 in damages after the judge ruled that Watchtower and the trustees of her congregation should be held responsible for her abuse by Peter Stewart. There was just a massive gaping sore in me that that judgment soothed and enabled me to actually go on and be a lot happier and be a lot healthier. But mixed in with relief was a deep sense of anger. Daria had been let down by many of the people she'd turned to for help. But one man stood out. His name was Alan Orton, the elder in the ill-fitting suit, the one who'd ripped up Peter Stewart's apology letter. And he's the one who told Daria he didn't know anything about Michelle's accusations after that meeting in Homebase. But he had known. In court, Alan Orton revealed he'd sat on Peter Stewart's judicial committee and that he'd personally heard Peter Stewart confessed to abusing Michelle. I didn't want to believe that he lied to me all those years, that he'd lied to me again to my face. It was just, it was astonishing. It made me feel, again, sick, that sensation of your stomach dropping, because it was true, and it was confirmation. He he admitted that he knew, um, and he'd known all along. We couldn't talk to Alan Orton, because shortly after the start of the pandemic, he died. The other two men believed to be on the Judicial Committee 
the one that dealt with the allegations by Michelle, have also died, Laurie Hunter and Robert Brown. But when Alan Orton gave testimony during the court case, Daria's lawyer, Kathleen Hallisey, was shocked. Knowing that there was an opportunity for an organisation to have prevented a child from being abused, and those are lifelong consequences for a victim of child abuse, that her life could have been so different, just lit a fire that I just wanted to learn everything that I could about it. Daria and Michelle's stories galvanised Kathleen, and since that first victory, she's become a thorn in the Jehovah's Witnesses' side, doggedly leading a dozen cases against them. In a way, Kathleen's job mirrors ours in the investigation team. She's been trying to hoover up every detail she can about the Jehovah's Witnesses, collecting documents, speaking to survivors. We've been doing the same. The more we learn, the more disturbing it becomes. Because it's not just about Peter Stewart or mistakes made in one congregation. And it's made us ask questions. Have we just scratched the surface here? Could there be more victims and more paedophiles who've confessed? And if so, are there records about them? A database of abusers. More on that after this short break. Hello, Cara McGugan here, the executive producer of Call Bethel and the host of another Telegraph podcast, Bed of Lies. For both these narrative series, we've spent months digging into complex scandals, sifting through long documents to find the truth and giving victims the space to tell their stories. Making shows like these takes time and we couldn't make them without the Telegraph subscribers. If you'd like to support our original journalism and read our award-winning coverage, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast, where you can get 30 days free access to the Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast, or click on the link in the episode description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
we'll never get a full picture of the scale of abuse amongst Jehovah's Witnesses. As a journalist, I hate to admit that, but we just won't, because it's such a closed world and because victims of child abuse often don't come forward until many years later. But we've been speaking to Jehovah's Witnesses from all over as part of this investigation, both ex-members and some current, and it's striking how many of them have a version of the same story, of someone being abused, then effectively silenced in one way or another. Some have had their allegations dismissed because there was no second witness. Others were made to feel like they were to blame. And then there are those like Daria, who found out much later that some elders knew they were in harm's way. I then started to be contacted by people who had left the faith but had been abused. After two or three times of the elders speaking to him and him getting away with it, it just kind of gave him probably more confidence to do more and more and become more and more sadistic. I had to defend myself on that because it was like, well, you seduced him. And I said, you abuse me systematically Mm -hmm. for between three and four years Mm -hmm. on a weekly basis. They had told me that it is my absolute right to go to the police, but they just failed to tell me that they would not support me during that process. As we speak to each of these people, we ask if there's any documentary evidence to verify their stories. That's pretty standard in any investigation, but it's especially significant in this one, because we're looking into whether the Jehovah's Witnesses have a secret abuse database. For every document our sources lead us to, there's another thread for us to pull. My colleague Sophie comes across a new source. Her name's Lacey Jones, and she gave evidence to ICSA. There's something intriguing about her case. Sophie knows that Lacey has uncovered data about her abuser. Thank you very much. She invites her into the telegraph offices with her older sister. Lacey's in her early 20s, and she's a total force to be reckoned with. Her stepfather, Clifford Whiteley, was a Jehovah's Witness elder. He was highly regarded within the community. So Lacey, also a Jehovah's Witness until recently, was excited when he married her mother. He was seen as a very pious man, a very moral man. It was sort of the spirituality had flowed out of him. But as with Peter Stewart, there was an enormous gap between Clifford Whiteley's public persona and the way he behaved in private. Around the time that Lacey turned 11, he began to sexually abuse her. On one occasion, when Lacey says he assaulted her quite graphically, he made them pray together. And asked for forgiveness for both him and me because we'd both done something wrong. Right. So yeah. I was quite traumatised for a long time after that because that definitely made me say, I can't, I can't tell anybody ever I've done something really horrific. It stirred all those deep-seated fears of Armageddon, that she would die when the world as we know it ends. But then, in 2019, Lacey broke her silence. She was 21 and a decade had passed since her abuse began. With the help of her sister, she went through the Jehovah's Witness process that I've been looking into, first reporting it to an elder. Her stepfather denied the allegation. Cliff said... No, I don't know why she's even saying that. I don't understand what's made her say that, but no. 
So the elders left, mum stayed that night, but in separate rooms. And in the morning, she asked him again, did you abuse my baby or did you touch my baby? And he said, yes, but it was only once and I was drunk, which isn't true. That partial confession was enough to get him disfellowshipped. Now, if Lacey hadn't had her older sister by her side, I think it's fair to say that Clifford Whiteley's punishment would have stopped there. But Lacey's sister had already left the Jehovah's Witnesses. And whilst all this was going on, she reported Clifford Whiteley to the police. Detective Philip Ensel was the officer on the case. He's been hard to pin down, but I finally catch him one morning as he comes off a night shift. Yeah, yeah, I got called in about uh, 10 o'clock last night um, for a, a kidnap, and um, we've pretty much been on it ever since, to be fair. So. Because he's so busy, we've never managed to meet in person, but he sounds like an old-fashioned detective. He seems to know every specific time and detail, and he speaks in a way that I can imagine him reeling things off from his notepad in court. I felt Lacey to be probably one of the most credible victims I've seen in a number of years. That's not belittling uh, anybody's allegation in any shape, form, fashion, but Lacey came across extremely genuine. Detective Ensor contacted Lacey's congregation, hoping they would help with the case. He'd seen the organisation's policy documents. All of which speak of that they will cooperate with law enforcement and you know, will encourage individuals to speak up about abuse. He wanted to get witness statements from two elders who'd heard Clifford Whiteley confess. They're called Rudy Dobson and Dave Clifford. But things didn't go according to plan. As the days and weeks went on, their willingness became less and less to a point where they were flatly refusing um, to, to cooperate in any shape, form or fashion. The elders say this isn't true, but they admit that they wouldn't talk about their conversations with Clifford Whiteley without his permission that doing so would be a breach of their religious duty of confidentiality. They referred Detective Ensor to Bethel, the Jehovah's Witness headquarters, who said the same. It really made me open my eyes to the organisation as a whole. When you're in it, you, you, you don't pay attention to any of the news articles. You'll just say, oh, that's just one, one case and the elders aren't perfect and you justify it. Very early on, Lacey said she asked Rudy Dobson and Dave Clifford, elders she'd known since childhood, why they wouldn't stand up for her. She invited them to her house. They sat on the sofa while she was on the floor. They read some scripture which was about slandering and explained it that because Clifford told them in confidence, it would be slander to then go and tell somebody else what he told them in confidence. So I sort of just stared at them like that doesn't that's stupid that doesn't make any sense and the second reason they said in order to be able to speak to the police or stand up in court we would have to step down from our position as elders so I didn't say anything because okay there's two of you I've known you my whole life you've known me since I was a child or probably even a baby so one of you if not both, are going to now tell me that you will step down and you will help me. So I just looked at them and they didn't say anything and they, they didn't look at me. They were avoiding eye contact. They were looking at the ceiling. They were looking at the floor. And I just leant forward and I said, but he's a paedophile. 
And without looking at me, they just sort of mumbled, yeah, we know. Rudy Dobson and Dave Clifford declined to comment for this podcast. Lacey and Detective Ensel were running out of options. If the elders wouldn't testify, the only other way Lacey was likely to get justice was through the Jehovah's Witnesses' own documents, written evidence of the abuse. They needed the elders' notes of Clifford Whiteley's confession. Once again, the elders said they were willing to help, but because the notes were confidential religious communication, they'd need Clifford Whiteley's permission or Detective Ensel would have to get a court order. Those can be tricky to obtain, so he needed to build a case. The first step was for Lacey to get all the data the Jehovah's Witnesses held on her. A member of her family made a suggestion. A very genius idea to request my GDPR information. She used data protection laws, and they sent her a summary. It was on three sides, and it included things like her date of birth and address as well as an old report on her stamina and whether she had a dignified personal appearance. And there was something else. At the very end of the report, very, very small, a couple of sentences that included, which said, a hearing to a confession of child abuse, one act of digital penetration by Cliff Whiteley against Lacey when she was between 10, 11... And that was it. A couple of sentences, just 17 words. That absolutely nailed it, that that, there was a document and there was something in existence. And that gave me the evidence, as it were, to be able to go to Crown Court. Detective Ensor applied for a court order. The Jehovah's Witnesses contested it, but the police won. Two days later, an elder turned up at the police station and gave Detective Ensor a sealed envelope. Within this envelope were two pieces of paper. They appeared to make up some kind of form. It had been done on a typewriter or something along those lines. Um, There was no sign, no signatures, um, no written notes. It was a record of Lacey's abuse. And it had been there for months. This was Clifford Whiteley's S77. That form I've mentioned before. I've asked to see it. But Lacey doesn't have it, and Detective Ensel can't pass it to me without clearance. But the S-77 gave them enough to secure a conviction. In 2020, a year after Lacey had first contacted the police, Clifford Whiteley was jailed for three serious sexual offences against a child. He was sentenced to nine years. In a letter to us, the Jehovah's Witnesses say it was the police's fault that the case didn't move faster. But Detective Ensor believes that it was the elders who slowed things down. He's dealt with religious organisations before and was used to them dragging their feet. But looking back, he believes the Jehovah's Witnesses were especially obstructive. I do find it difficult to comprehend why they were almost deliberately trying to obscure a legitimate investigation from a young lady who had been sexually assaulted. I've got to say this is probably the most awkward of organisations to deal with. But the thing I keep coming back to is that S77 form, which contains details of Lacey's abuse. The one that made all the difference in her case. 
From what sources have told us, the elders would have sent it to Bethel after Clifford Whiteley's judicial committee. And I've been wondering, what happens to it after that? And if there was a record of Lacey's abuse filed away somewhere, could there be records of other abuse cases? Forms like this one, containing details of the awful things other paedophiles have done to children. Could the secret database in fact be made up of documents like these? And is this the first evidence we have that it could exist in Britain? Coming up on Call Bethel. I had no idea that they kept these forms with that type of questions and and details and stuff like that. They don't have to go searching 14,000 congregations for this stuff. It's all on a database. Once you got over the awfulness of the amount of abuse, what was even more awful was the regularity of the inadequate response. Call Bethel is written by me, Catherine Rushton, and produced by Pete Norton, with additional production by Holly Fisher. The investigations team behind it are Claire Newell, Janet Eastham, Jack Leather, Sophie Barnes and me. Executive producers are Cara McGugan and Theodora Leludis. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive news and behind-the-scenes details, head to the Telegraph website. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel. If you've been affected by the issues in this podcast or have any tips to share, you can get in touch by emailing callbethel at telegraph.co.uk. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast. <laughs>